Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Steve Keen is with us, of course. Now, Karl Marx believed that the bourgeoisie who controlled the means of production were creaming off the wealth of the proletariat who did all the work, but they didn't get all that was due for their toils. The counter-agreement, of course, is that the capitalists took the risks, invested in infrastructure, and so getting a bigger slice of the cake was their just reward. And without that reward, nobody would ever invest in anything. So there wouldn't be any jobs for the proletariat. Even so, the, the bargaining capacity of the workers is not as strong as the capitalists, particularly in this day and age when it's easier to ship jobs overseas. So was Karl Marx right? Well, Professor Steve Keen is ready with the answer. And the question, I guess, is do poor people make the rich richer, Steve? I used to have uh, a stock answer to this, which goes through interplay between workers and capitalists and bankers and so on. But the recent work I've done on energy, which uh, I'm slowly adding to all of my economic work these days, uh, answers the question that neither workers nor capitalists fundamentally are the source of that increased value. Now, that's not that's that's that's, that's a, a sort of you know throw it out there statement. The point is we're ignoring a third factor with which with, with without, without which you can't produce anything at all, and that's energy. Yeah. So okay. for the factory, you um, need to power yeah. your factories or yeah. uh, you need to power your yeah. computers that uh, allows you to invent the next great thing. Yeah, yeah. and like I, I, um, I've just recently done some work on uh, which, which is the focus of my research on how energy contributes to production. But I just actually had to read as part of uh, putting a book together on uh, a, a large academic book for Edward Elgar on uh, the last 100 and so years of research into energy and economics, uh, reading, uh, what's his name, Soddy. I keep forgetting his first name, uh, who's this chemist back in the 1920s or thereabouts who wrote a lot of very uh, interesting things on economics from effectively taking a chemist's point of view. And he made a point at one stage saying that there's no such thing as a car that can move without petrol or a human that can move without food. And fundamentally, that's what I've included in my thinking. The same sort of little analogy occurred to me one day saying a, a, a worker without energy is a corpse and a, 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 a machine without energy is a sculpture. Mm. Neither of them can do any work. But so you've got to have energy in there. Now, right. when, you, when you work it through, and this is a, I think we're talking about this one, we should actually do it, do it again, I think, but the whole rule of energy in production. When you do that, you find that the vast majority of the output that actually is, is generated comes out of the energy behind us through machinery. So that's where the actual physical surplus comes from. Well, of course going, it takes, going, going back yeah, to the days yeah, of the Industrial yeah. Revolution, of course, it were people were, the, were those machines. You know, I mean, we... No, well, this, become- this, this, no this, this is the interesting thing. Uh, if, you look at, um, if, you, if you look at what actually caused the Industrial Revolution, a whole lot of factors, obviously, but one of them was exploiting coal. Yeah. And if you look at where that actually came from, the uh, the first reason to exploit coal was that when you were mining coal, for, to use for basically for heating, that was the fundamental use of it, uh, you know, replacing wood in some ways, uh, the mines would get filled up with water. 
So you needed a pump to get the water out to continue getting the uh, the coal out of the ground. And a whole range of people invented various steam engines, but the one that worked best was Watts, as we all know. Mm. And what 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 did uh, was include a governor on the machine so that uh, as the, as the boiler temperature got too high. The, uh, the governor would reduce the tip pressure. And also he had an external heat transfer device. So rather than just the, 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 the there was a way of re- removing the heat from the, 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 it was necessarily generated from the water so it would cool down again and get reheated. And that cycle uh, was an essential part of getting energy out of the, uh, out of the coal, which is firing the steam in a controlled way, which then you could mine the coal. And the whole thing took off from that. Right, but that, and, but yeah. th- that's controlling our ability to uh, to create. I mean, we can create more if we have more energy, but um, that's not asking the question about whether uh, through all of this, uh, the, the, you know, some people are getting richer than others. Well, this comes down to the next question because the usual attitude is, and this is the, the Marxist attitude, was that workers are the source of surplus. They they are the ones whose labour uh, is what creates the output and uh, they get paid a means of subsistence which might take, take six hours to reproduce, but they work in factories for 12, and that's the only source of surplus, according to Marx, uh, one version of Marx. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, and therefore, that's the source of profit. And then there's a battle between the worker and the capitalists over the share of that profit. Now, I've intellectually pulled that apart about, oh, God, how long ago now? Going back about 20... Oh, God. More <laughs> 20, than 20 25 years. 25 years. Right. Okay. And showed that Marx got his own logic wrong. And when you look at it properly, all inputs to production are potential causes of surplus, not only labour. Um, so that alone was saying that there was necessary exploitation, the focus that the workers produced all the surplus, and then you'd have to have you you would then have intellectual arguments from people saying, well, if it wasn't for the capitalist inventing the technology, you wouldn't have the uh, the, the the jobs for the workers, and therefore they deserve a share, and all these sorts of circular arguments. But they all start from the premise that the workers' labour is the only source of profit right. from, from a Marxian point of view, and that, using Marx's own logic, is wrong. So you're saying energy is also. The, the and, source and of energy almost almost exclusively, not quite uh, totally, but almost exclusively the source. When we harness energy, I mean, I, for example, could put you in a room which would give you as much energy as the uh, Falcon 9 rocket. You would then be blasted into billions of tiny little bits, not particularly useful with uh, use of the energy. Or I could sit you on a rocket that forced that energy out the back and you could be one of our first colonists on Mars. Right. Now, I don't want either harnessing. of those th- things to happen I, to me, by the way. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Think of the sunshine, but, but I can, I can uh, see. Well, it can't be any worse than England. That's true. But that's I can, true, that's I, true. Um, but I can see. Your, I see your point. You know, if it's used hmm. constructively, is what you're saying. So what you've got, therefore, is not a not a contest to exploit the, work, the labor, the work of the capitalists exploiting the labor, or vice versa, which is that particular struggle. But both of them bargaining with the whatever bargaining power they have over the surplus being generated by our technology. Right. We have sort of yeah. gone sideways a little bit on this, and and, and mm-hmm. I, I know. I, it's mm. an, an interesting discussion to explore further. But I would. Mm-hmm. I do you want to get back to why this difference? Because if we look in America, the mm-hmm. top 1% of income earners accounted for uh, less than 10% of, uh, of total, about 9% of total income in the, in the 1950s, all the way through the 60s, and all the way through the mm-hmm. 1970s. Then it started rising in the 80s. It's now well over 20%. This is in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little bit different in the UK, but what's what's this is a huge well, difference. This, 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 this is the other story because... Once you get it right that workers and capitalists are fighting over a share of the surplus generated by our technology harnessing free energy, 
then you get away from the, the necessary exploitation argument. The question is, what's what's the trend in the percentage shares going to workers and capitalists? Is there a declining trend for workers? Now, the answer is yes, but the other answer is there is not a rising trend for capitalists. Right. Yeah. So, who else is there that might be getting all the money? Banks. Indeed. Give the man a banana. Okay. It's, it's, I can it's just the, tell by the way you asked the question, you have that sneer in your voice. Oh, it's I know, obviously, I it's, know, it's obviously you, banks. You, well, you know, you know me too well, mate. So that's always fun. Um, so that's the story. What's the, 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 because we have this focus on worker versus capitalist, we've had a two class perspective on a three class system. And the bankers have been doing all this in the background and essentially by the more debt that is borrowed, whether that's borrowed by workers or capitalists, by the way, the more debt that's borrowed, the more of a charge they have over the productive capacity of the economy. And that's been the fundamental cause of the rise in inequality. Right. So the rich can. So the rich basically have got shares in banks, or they can invest in banks, or they can buy bonds or yeah. shares. Yeah. So they've got, they've got the ability to, to leverage what they've got to get more of it. Yeah, and what you got to know, it isn't really, and this is the thing which I, which I've I've done both in my work on Minsky and also the, um, pardon me, the work on Marx is that it's when you look at it in the in the dynamic monetary sense that I do, what I've realised is that it's the real class struggle over the distribution of income is not between worker and capitalist, it's between worker and financial financier, worker and the banking system. Mm. And this turned up even in my mathematical modelling because with the, the Minsky model that I built, um, we had three three fundamental variables to it, which are just the uh, the employment rate, the worker's share of output, which is what we're talking about here to some extent, and the debt-to-GDP ratio. Now, in the model, I simply had firms borrowing money to build factories. So the entire use of the money was non-Ponzi. It was to build real resources. I wasn't even looking at Ponzi investing. I didn't look at households or workers borrowing at all. I just had the firms borrowing the money to invest and build factories, which would then imply, employ workers. Now, so those were the three variables. When I worked out the equilibria of the system, the actual equilibria were different. There was the employment rate, which was the same as the system variable. There was the debt to GDP ratio, which is the same as the system variable. And there was the profit rate. And what it meant was the profit rate tended to cycle around or near the equilibria, one of the equilibria. Uh, and if there was therefore a rising amount going to bankers, there was a falling amount going to workers. So it wasn't that the capitalists were getting more. They were getting relatively, very cyclical, but relatively on the, on the long-term no trend until the economy collapsed in a, in a debt-induced recession. But there was no trend in their share because what was happening is the increasing amount they were going to, giving to bankers because of rising debt was being offset by a falling amount being given to workers. So right. the real class struggle and the real distribution of income and the real source of that inequality is the rising level of private debt Yet again, my favourite bloody topic, I know, well, but this is well, the, the rising debt giving more wealth to bank to bankers at the expense of workers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mentioned, you know, that it was uh, that uh, the uh, the top 1% of income earners were accounting for about 9% of total income in the mm. 50s, 60s and 70s, and now it's well over 20%. If we look mm. at the last time it was uh, over 20%, it was uh, almost 24%, was just before the Great Depression. So Indeed, uh, and the same story is going on. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is, so we, by focusing, and this is one of the reasons, I, mean, I know I took us on a diversion where you thought we'd go. Uh, but the reason is because I think that the normal conversation is a diversion from what's actually happening. Right. So the poor, in, in a nutshell, the poor aren't getting any poorer. It's just the rich are getting richer and they're getting well, richer. The poor, are getting, the, the poor are getting poorer. The capitalists are not getting richer. The, the bankers are. Right. 
And that's and if you if you have shares in bankers, then therefore you benefit from that. So it does actually transfer through share ownership, and of course, a part of the capitalist class is there. But the real uh, increase in inequality is being the rise of the strength of the financial sector. Right. And if but that I'm, hadn't but, happened, we wouldn't have the level of inequality we have now. Right. But we are saying the top one percent are oh. uh, 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 do count for a, a much higher proportion of the of the, to- oh, yeah. of the total income. Now they're not, they're yeah. not all people working in banks. They are people who borrowed money. From from banks invested and got a decent return, surely. And also, well, it's, it's actually the ones who actually did the lending no. and own the institutions that created the money. Sure. They're the ones who are making it. Not the people who borrow the money to use the what you know, use what the money created by banks to then invest and and employ people and so on. They're beginning getting a fairly constant share. The ones with the rising share are the ones who've been providing the debt or own the organisations that provide the debt, and all all, all pay, you know get paid outrageous salaries to manage these companies. We've all seen you know these you know jerks in finance paying themselves half a billion and up to two billion dollars a year in salary in some of the hedge funds around there they're creaming uh, the part of the increase in the level of private debt turning it into their income so the real source of this inequality and the reason it matters too actually is this increase in debt because again working from my modeling perspective if the dynamics were such that capitalists were not particularly aggressive in investing which of course you'd rather than be aggressive in investing but if they weren't you'd stabilize to a constant level of private debt and then you did constant income share there'd be no change in the distribution of income uh, but if you had capitalists wanting to invest more, being aggressive about investing, they would tend to borrow more in booms than they could pay back in slumps. The level of debt going to the uh, would therefore rise compared to GDP. The amount going to bankers would rise at the expense of workers because of this tendency for capitalists to get back to this relatively equilibrium level over time and that rising inequality was a prelude to total system breakdown because after a while the workers could no longer cut their have their salaries cut sufficiently to compensate for the exponential increase in debt uh, uh, given by compound interest plus the tendency to borrow more than during a boom than repay in a slump and finally you'd get the, the total collapse in the system where the bankers get everything and finally the capitalists get screwed because the exponential increase in debt, with, with not allowing for bankruptcy or for government spending in this very simple model, that overtook the system. So rising inequality wasn't just a nasty thing, the sort of thing you don't want to really have in a nice society. It was a sign that society's heading for breakdown. And that's, of course, where we've got to. So if we were to look at that top 1%, uh, and, 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 you know, if we take it to the, t- you know, even a smaller proportion of the population, then the differential gets even greater with the, with the general population. But, I mean, look at that 1% oh, yeah. or, or, or a section of it. Are you saying you reckon you know most of that top one percent would be uh, people either working in finance in the in the finance industry or had a significant shareholding in it? Yeah, absolutely. If you broke it into industrial capitalists versus financial capitalists, you'd find back in the sixties and seventies the inequality was because the Rockefellers and the Goodyears and um, and the General Motors shareholders and owners were uh, getting you know the pr- 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 income based on their on their share of capital. Uh, and the financial sector was relatively un- unimportant. And you fast forward to now, and all the major, uh, all, all the individuals who make that money, if you ask them where they make it from, it'll be from finance. Do you know what? Every time I talk to you, I have a list of questions I'm going to ask. And then uh, about uh, two minutes into the interview, I chuck them all away because they're no longer relevant. Uh, <laughs> but because um, one of the questions I was going to ask was, I know the answer is is no. I, I was going to finish this interview by saying, is the answer to this this uh, this wide gap, this income disparity, is the answer to uh, find a way to push up wages for the poor? But it's not. It's to try and control the banks. Effectively, yeah. 
uh, if you want to really stop this, it's it, it, trying to push up the workers' wages would work in the one sense that you've actually caused inflation and reduced the real uh, real debt burden on the economy. But fundamentally, that causes the rising level of private debt. So we've got to find a way to control that, get it back down to pretty much one third the level it's now reached. Did Karl and, Marx? Uh, that's a long way away. Did Karl Marx just getting back to where we started? Did Karl yeah. Marx ever consider the role of banks in any of his work? Absolutely, and this is what really pardoned the French pisses me off with volume one of Capital Marxist had never read more than volume one or certainly haven't comprehended more than volume one uh, because if you read volumes two and three of Capital and you read what is called theories of surplus value you find some brilliant analysis of the banking sector and one of the one of the posts that I wrote which really had an influence on me you know, having uh, a profile around the world was titled the roving cavaliers of credit now I've expanded my analysis of money dramatically since those days but that's a direct quote from Marx talking about how the roving cavaliers of credit uh, whenever they start to get taking over the system, that's a sign of breakdown is about to occur. And he says, this gang knows nothing about production and should have nothing to do with it. Carl was absolutely right on that one. Right. So it uh, gets back to that point, doesn't it, that we've got hmm. uh, that top 1% now uh, over 20% of uh, of all the income in the United States. Interestingly, it's not quite hmm. as uh, quite as marked in the, in the UK. Um, I can't get a comparable figure, at least at short notice I wasn't able to find it. But if you look at the Gini coefficient, which is another uh, way of uh, sort of measuring the disparity of income, it, it rose in the UK in the 80s just like it did in America. But since the global financial crisis, in fact, pretty much through this entire century, uh, it's been pretty stable. It's a lot higher than it was in the 50s and 60s, but but it's mm-hmm. not, not increasing. So does that mean there's less to be concerned about? Or do we look at the fact and say, well, hang on a second, why is it still so much higher than the 50s and 60s? Is it still an issue? Well, it's, it's still the fact that it's far higher than the 50s and 60s, because if you want to look at a golden age of capitalism, that was it. Yeah, And the reason it was a golden age was, was uh, there are many facets behind it, but one of the key reasons it was a golden age was after the Second World War and the Great Depression beforehand, the level of, of debt had been reduced so much that there could be tons of credit demand in the economy uh, with very little uh, negative impact in terms of debt servicing, cutting back your capacity to spend or invest. And the and the, so with plenty of credit demand and people not being particularly financially encumbered, uh, there was masses of investment taking place and masses of creativity being expressed. And at that stage, the financial sector was the servant of, of the industrial sector, not the master. Now, of course, it's the master. And as Marx actually also said, I believe I've got to remember this quote, I think it's from Marx. He actually said the finance is a good servant, but a terrible master. And that's fundamentally what we've allowed to have happen. We've let the terrible master take over once more because we're distracted by this worker versus capitalist thing. Oh, to return to those halcyon days of the 1950s and uh, 1960s when we never had it so good. Uh, But a lot lot has got to happen for us to get to that stage again. Indeed. All right. Good to talk, Steve. Uh, An interesting one. We'll, uh, We'll catch you again soon. Okay. And there will be more again soon. You can send your feedback to me, uh, Phil Dobby, or uh, Prof Steve Keen on Twitter. Uh, always good to hear your feedback. And we'll be back again very soon with another Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.